Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. John C. Alberti is a minimally invasive surgeon at the University of Chicago. He is an iconoclastic scientist whose research focuses on gut microbiome and its impact on surgical site infections. His lab, which is continuously NIH-funded, has put out publications in Nature and many other high-impact journals. Most importantly, however, Dr. Alberti is willing to challenge commonly accepted ideas and assumptions, like the basic tenet that we really know why anastomoses leak. He gave a fantastic talk this year at the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons, and we'd highly encourage you all to listen to that as well. That was the Normandy Nigro named lectureship. And now, Dr. Alverdi. Dr. Alverdi, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel. Just to start with, could you uh, tell us about where you grew up and where you did your training? So I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, on the northwest side of the city. Uh, it was in the city proper. Uh, and um, it, it was a very nice neighborhood, middle-class neighborhood. We had a three-bedroom, bath-and-a-half house. Uh, my father is a son of an immigrant, uh, and he uh, was a dentist uh, uh, who went to Northwestern University's uh, undergrad and dental school. And, um, you know, on the block that I lived, there was, you know, uh, a doctor that lived to our left, a lawyer that lived to uh, uh, our right. Uh, down the hall was the, a bus driver. Across the way was a plumber. There was a carpenter. It was a very interesting and mixed uh, neighborhood. You know, I grew up, I was born in 1953. And um, uh, everybody just kind of played outside and didn't worry about anything. And, you know, you, you left the house when you were young. Uh, at eight o'clock in the morning in the summer, you didn't come home except for dinner. Um, and uh, it was a great sort of way to grow up. And um, my, uh, I went to um, uh, a Catholic grammar school, which was within walking distance of the neighborhood and a Catholic high school and a Catholic college, Loyal, Loyal Academy and Marquette University. And then um, uh, then I was a Spanish major in college. I wanted to go to foreign affairs school, and um, and uh, that was not uh, received well by my father, who was a great guy and loved me to death. But you know, he was a, a dentist and said, you know, as a son of an immigrant, there are three things you can be: an engineer, a doctor, or a dentist. Otherwise, you're going to starve. You know, when the depression comes and the ceiling falls down. And so <laughs> that's kind of how I ended up sort of last minute 
going to medical school in Mexico, where I went for three years, and then uh, uh, which was turned out to be an interesting experience, especially with all the interest now in global medicine and understanding how perhaps 80%, 90% of the world receives healthcare. And then uh, finished at Loyola University Medical School, where I spent a year uh, and then um, uh, took up a residency at Michael Reese Hospital, which was the 1,000 bed teaching hospital about three miles away from where I work now at the University of Chicago. It was a University of Chicago affiliated hospital. Um, and there was a lot of sort of cross training between uh, the programs here and the programs there. Um, and so that was sort of my connection to the University of Chicago when Michael Reese started having financial trouble and the two institutions were gonna merge. And as you can imagine, um, <clears throat> what two large powerful institutions um, when they make the decision to merge, it's always complicated. Uh, there are egos that are bruised and uh, that sort of fell apart. And I ended up coming to the University of Chicago where I joined in 1993 uh, as an assistant, uh, as an associate professor, actually I'd already been at the other institution for five or six years and had been promoted. And I came to the University of Chicago, not only because I partially trained here, but also because the University of Chicago is known, is still known as, is a research university. It's, you know, undoubtedly considered one of the premier research universities in the world. Uh, and its hospital at the time was not a, you know, sort of a, a full service, the go-to hospital. It was the place you go to when nobody else can solve your problem. And it's sort of morphed now more into a full service university teaching hospital with outstanding service at all levels, whether you're having your gallbladder removed or a lung transplant, um, it, it sort of doesn't matter. We provide it at the highest level of service. Uh, but it was a place where at every level of uh, engagement that I had as a uh, faculty member, at every level of engagement, um, the most appreciated and most rewarded uh, element of your practice and career was the new knowledge that you created. And it was supported in a way that really allowed me to be able to do the work that I that I do. Now, Michael Reese was the same way. I mean, they were sort of sister institutions and uh, Michael Reese at the time had the most number of NIH grants of any a private hospital in the United States, at least when I trained there. So it was very sort of heavily uh, involved in academic pursuits at, at, at their most sort of fundamental molecular discovery level. And so I was used to that. And, you know, people always ask me, how did you do it? How did you, you know, still operate and, you know, be a, a you know, considered a master surgeon and a competent surgeon and a go-to surgeon and at the same time have a lab? And I said, well, you have to be in the right place because not every place allows faculty to do that, you know, where you can, you know, have one foot on one side of the bridge and another foot on the other and actually be, be nurtured on both sides, both the, uh, you know, hospital presidents and the deans and the chairs of surgery and the section chiefs, you know, appreciated and made accommodations for you to do both. And that's rare. It's not for everybody, um, but 
you know, it's rare. And, and, it, and if it's done right, uh, you know, you can be, um, you know, both a operating surgeon uh, and, and have an enjoyable practice and enjoy the, uh, you know, the inner sanctum of the operating room. Uh, and you can also uh, be fluent and conversant in molecular techniques. Now, I, you know, I'm not sitting there now, certainly had at one time, I'm not pipetting or killing mice or running Western blots myself. I have people that do that, but, um, but you know, you have to be dedicated to do both to actually end up being able to do both. So I always say, you know, I had a non-traditional career. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a trained scientist. I, I was a language major in college with aspirations of something completely different than I am now. And yet um, I think, you know, uh, one's own inner directedness and, you know, curiosity and passion. And I, I don't think those are enough. I think it's, it's almost obsession, you know, with a clinical problem that needs to be solved at a more molecular fundamental level. You, you need to almost be obsessed with the problem because it's so, you know, clinical medicine is, is so uh, seductive in a way, you know, the, the patients pull you in, you know, you're, you're outstandingly trained and you want to help them and you want, you know, it's hard to let yourself be distracted by anything else. And certainly you want to be a master surgeon technically and a master educator if you have a university hospital. So that's almost enough bandwidth right there to keep you going. So it's, you know, um, that's why I use the word obsession. I even have it in a slide, like, you know, it, you have to be obsessed with a problem to put in the time and energy that it takes to do both. But let's just say that. You know, that's, that's such an amazing uh, description and there's so many things to unpack there, but I, I'd love to focus on just, just one and, 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 you know, it's, it's honestly unexpected, but I, I'm so glad you brought it up. In the last uh, a day or so here, I, I just was reviewing a, a peer-reviewed uh, uh, manuscript submission for the journal. And it was interesting because it looked at academic productivity through a number of the metrics that you, of course, would, would know, you know, your H index, your citation index, and all, all this sort of stuff at the ind individual clinician slash academic surgeon level. And as you predict, you know, things like having a master's degree or a PhD prior to entering med school or an MD PhD in med school, they were predictive of, of uh, longer term productivity. But there was a couple of very interesting things I, I'd love to ask you about. In, in particular, the range in terms of productivity was, was monstrous. When you look at the hyper performers that were two or so standard deviations north of, of, the, of the mean, um, you know, it didn't really characterize the features of those people or the characteristics of them. But I'm curious what, what your thoughts are, having been so productive and world-renowned for so long. And then the second part is, what are some of the core concepts or, or deliverables that really um, speak to your comment about being supported in the places you've been and where you are now that have come your way? What, what, what would you recommend are, are things that, that are really sort of to fight for or to ask for, for, for maybe a more junior person setting up a, a, a hybrid uh, academic experience like yours? Oh, well, thanks. Those are, those are very insightful questions. And, you know, they're different for everybody, you know, since I'm, you know, um, 
fascinated by bacteria, I always say, you know, no two species of bacteria are alike. No two strains, no two individual isolates are alike. So, you know, we shouldn't racially profile bacteria and we shouldn't do it to people and we shouldn't do it to physicians and we shouldn't do it to academic physicians because we're all different. We're all motivated by different things. And, um, you know, when you when you brought up the idea of these outliers, you know, what makes somebody, one person so productive over the other, you know, it's a really difficult question to answer. It's sort of like, I often use the, the I gave a talk once, one of these evening talks I was asked to give. Um, you know, when you look at sort of these amazing achievers, like, you know, somebody like Miles Davis, you know, who is, still has an album that's the greatest jazz selling album of all time. And, you know, the guy is a childhood prodigy. He ends up at Juilliard, you know, at a time when not many African-Americans could enter that school. And after about a year and a half, he goes to the dean or a year, I don't know. And he says to the dean, you know, um, this is really wonderful. Thank you very much for the opportunity to work here. He says something like, but there's nothing here you really can teach me. <laughs> Imagine walking up to the dean of your medical school or, or your chairman of your department of surgery and say, you know, it, it's really wonderful working here at, I don't know, Harvard, Yale, whatever, but there's really nothing I can learn here. <laughs> yeah, unbe unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And then the guy, you know, figures out how to, you know, change the way jazz is being played and chord progressions and creates modal jazz and all this other stuff around music theory that people are just blown away by, you know, you know, the same thing could be said of, you know, somebody like Steve Jobs or others. It's what is that inner directedness and what is that, you know, um, you know, what is that uh, obsession and, and sort of, you know, I, I call it this, you know, when I'm writing a grant, you know, my family, they usually go, dad's in a scientific trance. Dad's in a trance. Just stay away from this, you know. What what allows you to do that, right? And and what you know, one of my uh, one of the chairs here, uh, you know, the chair of medicine said to me once, he goes, if you let people do what they love, they're usually very productive. Um, so so not everybody gets that opportunity, right? So like you know, to answer your the second part of your question about you know how 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 can I, you know provide some pearls to junior people. I mean, think about that first job. You know, you're just you're just this young person out of your training. You feel good about yourself, but you know, of course, who wouldn't want to be at this prestigious, you know, university uh, hospital in, in Canada or in the United States or in London or Australia or New Zealand where you have students and residents and this, that, and the other. But that may not always jive with the job that they want to pay you to do and the job that's available at the time. Maybe it doesn't jive with where your family, your extended family, your, your parents and your grandparents live or where your spouse or partner is willing to go. And you got and So all this stuff just floats in there and everybody kind of gets railroaded into being in a place where Maybe they never thought they'd land up. And then the opportunities in that place, to my point, you know, I was lucky. I grew up in Chicago, 
you know, there's Rush, there's Northwestern, there's U of C, there's Loyola, there's like four great medical centers. My wife's family grew up in Chicago. She grew up in Chicago. All the extended family was here. You know, I, I trained at a place that was three miles from the place I've been at for 30 years. You're like, geez, Alverdi. You know, you just had it made, just being lucky enough to grow up in Chicago and somehow these positions opened up and you were there. That's true. There's no doubt that's true. But then at the second part is, and I, I've said this on other interviews, it's hard not to get seduced by the by the uh, technical uh, allure and the technical marvel and the technical fantasy and the technical demands of surgery. I mean, how often when you leave a case do you go, oh, that was just amazing. I mean, not only was it technically beautiful and elegant, but I just saved that patient's life. I mean, who gets to do that? And who doesn't want to keep doing that more? Maybe it was like when Miles Davis was playing and I, and I brought this up in this lecture, they got these other amazing jazz musicians. And if you talk to any musicians, rock, jazz, they, they're playing off each other. It's like the band, right? You know, one person plays something and they hear it, the other person plays something. And, you know, they may do a concert and play like they've never played a particular song the same way. And they're like, oh my God, that was amazing. Forget about how many people bought tickets and how much money they made. And the same thing happens with surgeons, right? You go into the operating room and you've got some, I don't know, tumor wrapped around the diaphragm. You open it up and you've got some really amazing chief resident and a surgeon fellow, and I don't know who else you have. And they're great nurses, great circulating nurses, whatever it is that you need maybe do equipment and it just goes perfectly. And you're like, oh, that was just amazing. Well, who doesn't want to do that more? You know, if you're in this rock band or you're this jazz, you, you want to go back to school? You want to start, you know, studying music theory and writing about it and changing it? Or you want to just keep playing? And I think, you know, there's so many more people there's so many people smarter than me, more talented with advanced degrees that have trained that, you know, that that were neuroscience majors at prestigious places and did postdocs. And they're amazing. And I actually am thinking of one right now. Yet they just want to be clinicians. They, they you know, they, they I have one MD PhD who got his MD PhD from here and worked literally with a world famous immunologist. And I said to him, I said, don't you want to do any research? I mean, you know, your anesthesia, critical care, you're an amazing man, this page. He goes, nah, I just got the PhD. So they pay for my, you know, school. I was able to get it. And I have no, I had no debt, and, you know. Uh, you know, I, I moved to Chicago because my parents are here and this, that, and the other, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wow, that's unbelievable that, you know, you, you want to do that. I wish, I wish I was, first of all, smart as you to get into the MD PhD program here, not to mention, get it, get your school paid for, but only all he wants to do is take care of patients. And he's an amazing anesthesiologist, critical care specialist. On the other side of that is an MD PhD that I work with is who probably who is one of the smartest people I know here. Um, and He's hilarious. This guy is hilarious. He's MD PhD from Washu. Went to Princeton undergrad. Washu MD PhD. 
then he never did a residency, but then he did a Rhodes Scholarship in uh, at Oxford working under this brilliant neuroscientist. And I said, Bobby, why didn't you ever do a residency? He goes, oh, I always wanted, knew I wanted to be a neuroscientist. He goes, but you know, I'm the son of immigrant parents. They're from India. And they said, if you don't get an MD degree, we're going to, you know, we're going to disown you. He says, so I got the MD degree from my parents. You know, your analogy between surgery and, you know, Miles Davis as a jazz musician is just brilliant. And it's just so on point. And I think, I think it highlights for our listeners and for us just how, how, you know, hard your road potentially has been. Um, you know, dedicating the time to do something that is increasingly rare. Like, you know, this 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 skill set as being a surgeon scientist is is a very rare kind of breed now, um, you know, in 2021. And uh, so I think I think it is worth just noting again how hard that can be and, and uh, what, as you say, what an obsession you must have had to do this. So can you tell us a little bit about like what started your obsession with the microbiome? Now it's sort of like, you know, a... A popular thing for everyone to just talk about, you know, microbiome, microbiome, microbiome. But I don't. It certainly wasn't. Uh, I'm sure when you started looking into it, certainly not uh, in the surgical literature. So, what started your obsession uh, with the microbiome and how it affects surgical site infections and uh, and anastomotic leaks and and all the things we're going to talk about later on? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I, I've told the story before. Uh, sorry if you've to the listeners if you've heard it before, but when I was a resident, I was on the pediatric surgery service, uh, and it was a combined service between the University of Chicago and, and Michael Reese, where I trained. And there was this child who was about 10 or 11 years old that a couple years ago had, a couple years prior to his uh, hospitalization, had leukemia, was given you know chemotherapy, did well, was disease-free. And then he came in uh, with an infection and he had had his hickman line still in from the chemotherapy. And, um, but had no evidence of disease as far as we could tell. And he had a fever and he looked sick. And, you know, I cared for him because we had to pull the hickman line in. And at some point we ended up exploring this kid because, you know, between all the king's horses and all the king's men, nobody could figure out what was wrong with this kid, but he was clearly infected. And, um, and you know, infectious disease came by, you know, he's on five antibiotics, the usual story for somebody like this. And he wasn't neutropenic or anything. And I watched his mother rock him while he was on a ventilator as he started to deteriorate. You know, the two being hooked and the mother's got the kid in her arms, rocking him with an endotracheal tube and two being hooked to the ventilator. And I watched her rock him to his death. And, you know, once that face of a mother is seen, it, it can't be unseen. It's just, and you, you know, it's different for everybody. We all lose people that we love in life. But when a mother loses a child, I think it's a whole different thing. And so I'm like, that infection had to come from somewhere. I mean, you know, the kid had you know, nothing on his skin. You know, everybody looking up and down, CAT scans, you know, everything we could do to try to figure out what, what the source of the infection was. And we didn't even know what infection he had because blood cultures were negative. And he was in multiple organ failure dying of infection. 
So I, I, you know, I had this idea that, well, the, 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 the human who are, we are, we're animals. We have nasal surfaces, lung surfaces, gut surfaces. This, this, this live being is not sterile. So that some, some pathogen somewhere or group of pathogens is driving this kid into organ failure and, and, and sepsis. And so I sort of, it, it, I wasn't the first to think of this, you know, this idea of gut derived sepsis, that somehow microbes within the GI tract have, uh, you know, assembled into a community that's gone from being, I don't know, uh, commensal organisms, you know, symbiotic organisms to bad actors. And uh, there were a lot of people studying bacterial translocation and a lot of immunity. And I'm like, that, that can't be right. And so I started studying it, you know, and, and I think you brought this up in the, um, the sort of uh, teaser document that you sent me, you know, why, why was I studying gut immunity? Because, you know, everything was framed and still is framed as a binary, right? It's the bugs against the immune system. And so if you've given antibiotics, you've killed all the bugs, so it must be the immune system, but it can't be that simple. So th that's why in the lecture that I gave, I, I don't know if you guys heard it, the Nigel lecture, I said, you know, I quoted a, 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 a very preeminent scientist at Hopkins, uh, Arturo Kazadeval, and he says, virulence or harmfulness is neither a property of the pathogen, nor is it a property of the host, but it is a property of their interaction. So I like to I like to sort of frame this idea that um, if you have two partners, you know, um, who are you know married or living together, and 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 the arrangements, the relationships not working out, you know, is it partner A or partner B, or is it the chemistry between them? You know, unless somebody's an you know a frank abuser or some sort of horrible person, it's usually. They're both nice people, just the chemistry doesn't work. And I think we're going through that with this whole COVID thing. Everyone wants to say, oh, it's a mutant strain you got. That's why you died or something. No, it's IL-6. No, it must be a SNP in TNF-alpha in your immune system. It's just, you know, and Arturo and I have talked about this. He goes, it's too difficult to disentangle this molecular hairball. It's got to be some kind of... Uh, you know, a relationship that's peculiar to the person. What is their, I don't know, their nasal mucosal mucus biochemistry versus the surface biochemistry and the spike protein of the COVID of the coronavirus, you know, I, they align perfectly. And I actually, unfortunately had a, a, a close friend who died of COVID. He's a vascular surgeon and they just, he just got it. And three weeks later, he was dead. And there's no explanation. He was not on any meds. He was perfectly healthy, jogged, you know, I, you know. And you know, you you want to say, well, he must have gotten a bad strain. Or, you know, he was of Italian descent. He he was born in the United States. Said, oh no, it was because he was Italian. I'm like, that, 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 that's not right. You know, millions of Italians got it and they were fine. But some died, yes. Okay, but <laughs> you can't individualize it. You know, you can't explain it. We do that in surgery a lot, you know, at M&M, right? We explain away things, but, you know, there's so much uncertainty in what we do, which is why they say, you know, 
when you come up with a new idea, it takes a surgeon 15 years to make a change in his or her practice. <laughs> yeah, that's such a su- such a great point. You know, I'm I'm curious, just given your 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 background and your 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 life's sort of career's work, did did do you see the pandemic uh, coming ahead of time? Did you have a sense that we would be in a in a global crisis like this that would go the way it's gone? No, definitely not. In fact, you know, uh, nobody did. There, there's a paper somebody sent me from 2007 that examined coronaviruses in bats, and it said something to the effect of this virus, because it's you know airborne and is spread by respiratory uh, things. And, and they did some work with it and said, it, you know, it, it has a lethal component to it. They said um, something like this, this virus has all the raw goods to cause a pandemic. But they didn't say it's gonna happen. They just said it has all the raw goods. But I like to think, and I listened to a podcast um, uh, by Sam Harris. I can't remember this woman's name, but she was from the University of North Carolina. And uh, she's a sociologist, brilliant woman. And she said, uh, said, the coronavirus pandemic is nothing more than a dress rehearsal for what is to come. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah, and, and it's, you know, I like to think of these things, even the microbiome and even anastomotically, these are diseases of human progress. We've, we've progressed along a, a path in which we eat highly processed, high fat, low fiber foods. Uh, we're all vaccinated. We take antibiotics. We take too many antibiotics. We, we 70% of the antibiotics used in the United States are used in animals, uh, you know, in, 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 in their feed. You know, we, 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 there's a climate problem. You know, when you look back, you know, it always seems, yeah, you know, we were just, this was ready to happen. We're just too stupid to figure it out. Um, but uh, there are a lot of TED Talks and podcasts now predicting the next pandemic to be, I hope they're wrong, antibiotic resistance emergence in surgical patients. So, you know, uh, Amir and Chad, you know, we, we operate on a patient, straightforward case or, you know, uh, let's say it's even a, you know, a, a non-contaminated, you know, not, not even, um, you know, a colon, a elective colon or gallbladder or something, but let's say like a hip operation or a knee operation where you're putting a, and, and patients are dying of multi-drug resistant bacteria that, that are not from the wound necessarily. It's not a wound infection. Maybe it's some sort of bug in your nose or in a crypt deep in your cecum or I don't know, in, in your gums. I have no idea. I hope I hope they're wrong, but you know, uh, it's yeah, scary. It's <laughs> such a complex topic, um, uh, and and I really want to dive into some of the stuff that you you talked about in your Norman D. Nigro lecture because it just was absolutely fascinating. But the, I want to circle back to one of the things that you you just talked about and you mentioned was which is this whole concept of M and M rounds and and how problematic sort of our leanings and our, our, our learnings from that institution can be fraught with danger. And one of the things that you said in your, your talk was that, you know, M&M rounds are where we go to learn from the ignorance of experts. There are two different errors that we make, you know, this between comparison fallacy and solipsism. Could you just 
summarize for the audience what 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 did you mean by that in, in terms of the M and M rounds and those two errors that you talked about in your lecture? Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, so the the between group comparison fallacy is um, uh, is really how we we compare two groups, let's say in a randomized controlled trial or even a retrospective study. Uh, and we if we have a p value difference between the two groups, and I'll just use this since you know, we're interested in an asthmatic week. Let's say you have two, two groups um, and they're different surgeons. And one surgeon has an anastomotic leak rate of 18% and the other has one of nine. And the P-value is, you know, less than 0.05. You're like, you see, your surgeon makes a difference. I'm like, this, it's the surgeon? It's the surgeon. Look, the only thing different between these two groups is the surgeon. And there's a difference. I'm like, that's interesting. So the surgeon that you'd go to with the 9% leak rate, who's better, right? Oh, yeah, he's better. She's better. Oh, no question. Look, look at the data. Like, yeah. So uh, why did those 9% in his or her hands leak? Well, you know, there's biologic variability, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. You have no explanation, right? No. Well, those were fat patients. I go, all the other ones were skinny. All the other ones were non-smokers. Well, no, we didn't account for the within-group differences. Ah. Now, the surgeon that had an 80% leak rate, now you're saying he or she's a bad surgeon. Yeah, that's right, higher than this guy over here. Go to that other hospital. I'm like, okay. So that means 82% of the time he or she got it right, correct? Yeah. Well, so was that luck? Or they were having a good day that day and a bad day the other day. No accounting for within group differences, only between group differences and mean values. And you and I know, all of us, Chad, Amir, but all three of us know that those two groups were not perfectly equal, right? And, and, and you know, if you could, you know, anywhere, University of Toronto, University of Chicago, wherever you could say, we have the lowest infection rate in the region for, I don't know, hip arthroplasty, the patient should be, you know, standing around the block waiting to get in line to see you. But nobody can do it because everybody has leaks. Everybody has infections. These problems are rare, thank goodness. But the explanations for the accounting within the group that's treated, within the group, not between the group, is, is, is not sort of, we don't get to that root cause, which is why in that lecture I use the idea of an airplane uh, you know, a misadventure or an unexpected landing of an airplane or, or God forbid, a crash. You know, the FAA, the NSTA, they get in there and they take that whole thing apart. They get the recorder, they get the black box, this, everything. And they don't just come up with an answer in M&M. Next case, they, they take some three, four, five months, you know, with a jury and a board of experts, a consensus panel, and then they write up a draft of why they thought it happened. Do we ever do that for an asthmatic leak or wound infection? No. Not, yeah, I mean, I, I remember this video that, or this tweet that you put out where you said yeah. that you showed a video, two videos of, uh, to this yeah. group of surgeons. And then in the first video, you, you said, okay, well, this anastomosis leaked. And uh, tell me what, what went wrong in this 
in this technique and in, in this video. So the surgeon said, well, they did this wrong. There was tension and blah, blah, blah. And in the second video, you said, this one didn't leak. Tell me what went right in this video. And then they said, well, it was clearly it's much better, technically much superior. And then you said, well, actually, <laughs> it was reversed. <laughs> the, the second one leaked and the one first one didn't. And uh, like, I don't think what you're getting at is like this, you know, nihilism that that um, we can't fix these problems or that it's out of our hands. But in fact, that maybe, and, and I think a, a big thrust of your talk for AS, at ASCRS was just this idea that we don't know what really causes anastomotic leaks because we don't really examine them in that way. Um, I do want to ask you to, to, to explain the second thing, which is on solipsism. And then, and, you, and then in the talk, you really outlined in a very beautiful way the kind of the research i think going back to the 50s that that illustrated the idea that bacteria and the microbiome actually have a huge role to play in anastomotic leaks so we'd love to hear that um that that series because you presented that so beautifully well thank you so much so yeah so um you know to to this first idea uh you know of 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 video imaging i i i I frame it this way, and I'll say this just as briefly as I can. If you took all the grants that went to the NIH that got accepted versus those that didn't, and then you took the people that didn't get their grant accepted, and you said, now I'm going to show you all the grants that got accepted. I can bet you, just having been, I am on study section, a lot of people would say, oh, my grant's just as good as that. I can't believe you accepted that one. Why did you do that? That That's wrong. Mine's better. Just like if you apply it, uh, at, least, at least in the United States, to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, and you don't get in, and then somebody handed you all the applications to the people that got into those schools, you'd be like, well, I'm as good as her or him or whatever. I can't believe they rejected me. My GPA was the same, my SATs, blah, blah, blah. It, it's too hard to be a judge of, of things that you think you're objective about, okay? It, 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 it's in, in fact impossible. And Herb Zay, who's the chair at New Texas Southwestern, he said the OR videos, you know, uh, he, what did he say something? He gave a talk that said something like, we're not alone anymore in that operating room. It's no longer the inner sanctum. There's gonna, there's a company called Black Box, by the way, a company that will video everything in the operating room. Now, Chad and Amir, you can imagine that if somebody videoed everything that you did in the operating room, I mean, let's say eight cameras are in there, and then you hand, and let's say the patient had a complication, and you handed that over to somebody, they find something that, that that went wrong. Why did you let that work? Did you see that? That student, that student bumped his elbow or her elbow against the IV pole. That's what caused the staph infection. You're like, but you know, you'd be looking at these people going, people break scrub all the time. People bump in IV poles all day long. 90% of my patients don't get an infection. You know, you, you can't almost level the playing field unless you look at all the videos. And that's why I did that. And boy, did I, did I piss off the people when I did that video of the leak? You know, like they, they were mad at me, right? Because I showed how fickle we are in our judgments. And that's the word solipsism. I learned it from Ben Eisman, 
Um, and he used it once at a lecture he gave when he was visiting professor here. And he defined it as something like the self is all knowing based on the accumulated experience that one has, right? So that's why I said the, you know, it's the, um, it's where we learn from the ignorance of experts. I didn't mean that in a derogatory way. Ignorance means lack of knowledge, right? These are the experts. So, so when the experts say, must have been ischemia, you know, leave their going, must have been ischemia. What the hell do I know? I'm just a first year resident. I don't know anything, you know? And, and, but, but we don't, we don't dig in enough and we should. And so, um, we took, you know, this idea, I, I told this in the Nigro lecture that I honestly uh, got interested in mastomotic leak only because a, a resident came to me and she wanted to go into colorectal surgery and study it. She needed me to do a project. She loved my line of research, which was to show how bacteria can become in vivo activated, express virulence genes and virulence exoproducts that can cause damage to the epithelium. She wanted to incorporate that into something have to do with colorectal. And I said, how about an astomotic leak? And it was really that that we started looking at the literature up. But here's the way I frame it, and it, this will make it really simple for everybody, for our listeners. You can't have a wound infection without bacteria. It's not possible. They, they have to be there. You don't have a bacterial wound infection. No bacteria, no wound infection. But bacteria alone, the, the, the scientific lexicon is necessary and sufficient. Bacteria are necessary to cause a bacterial wound infection, but they're alone not sufficient to cause it because we know we spill bacteria in there all the time and we don't get an infection. So it, there's something else. Maybe it's a seroma, maybe it's a hematoma, maybe it's this Trojan horse hypothesis where the wound is beat up a little bit and the bacteria from the gums and the nose and the gut find their way, who knows? But no bacteria, no bacterial wound infection. It's not possible. But we know that bacteria are required, but alone not sufficient to cause a surgical site infection. Same with an astomotic leak. Bacteria are required when we inactivate these collagenase bacteria, you don't get a leak. When in 1955, Isidore Cohen got rid of the bacteria by putting a catheter directly in there, no anastomotic leak, even though the, the anastomoses were ischemic. But alone, because they're there all the time, alone bacteria are not sufficient. So bacteria are necessary, but alone not sufficient, which is why, you know, technique is important to a certain extent. You want to be gentle with the tissues. Sure, you want them to have a good blood supply. You don't want them to be under tension, et cetera. But uh, those may, those aspects and certain things we can't control, you know, you, you go in there and let's say you reach down and there's a, you know, a bulky exophytic tumor uh, at the peritoneal reflections stuck to the lateral uh, pelvic wall and you're digging around there for two hours to get it out. Uh, you know, you know, let's say you get into some bleeding. Now you've got other things going on. So it's not that it's alone the bacteria, but now you've created the environmental cues, maybe a little hypoxemia, you know, a little blood loss, a little tissue trauma. And now you take these perfectly two pieces of intestine, and let's say you're, I don't know, three to five centimeters above the anal verge, 
you've taken down the splenic flexure, you uh, consummate your anastomosis, two donuts, looks beautiful, inject your ICG, everything's wonderful, you irrigate, you scope, leak test is negative, you're like, yes! But it's all that other stuff on top of maybe having pathogenic bacteria there that you didn't know about. So without the bacteria, no leak, but without those other cues, those bacteria are not gonna be activated to cause the leak. So these are things where people you know, have said to me, it's not bacteria, we give antibiotics, so anyway, it can't be bacteria, it's gotta be something else. And that's why industry, and they still are focused on, this is a problem that we can mechanically solve. It's gotta be the stapler height, this, the compression, or with the ICG, it's gotta be blood flow, but I have to tell you, most hypotension and hypoxemia occurs postoperatively, not intraoperatively. I'd like to see an ICG study where they gave it two days post-op and three days post-op and looked at islands of ischemia that developed as a result of, I don't know, some of the collaterals clotting off or some of the hypotension or hypoxemia causing, you know, we, we did a study, we published it where we actually scoped patients, uh, you know, uh, intraoperatively before they went home and two weeks later. And I got to tell you, post-op day three, those things, they look beautiful in the OR. Post-op day three, man, you know, that, that circumferential line, it looks puckered. It can be edematous. There can be little islands of ischemia. But, you know, the body seals it on the outside. It adapts. You know, things get better. 90, what am I supposed to say, uh, Amir, uh, Chad, 95% of the time? What's a leak rate? Yeah. What is the leak rate? Yeah. 5%? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm glad you brought that paper up. You know, that's that's a very popular paper in Canada, and we 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 refer to it often. It's an absolute beauty. I, you know, I think maybe extending that. Then the question is, wh where do we go from here to quote unquote solve solve these issues? Like, you, you're right. I think we all concur. It's not always mechanical. It's not always environmental. It's this it's this you know really detailed and complex interaction but what do you see in a perfect world the next uh decade or so in terms of lines of investigations and and sort of great hopes to try and uh, improve our quality outcomes again yeah uh, that's a great question and i i do think it's going to be to address again remember the microbiome let's call it not even bacteria now we'll call it the microbiome plays a key and contributory and causative role in anastomotic leak pathogenesis and surgical site infections beyond intraoperative contamination, uh, you know, in terms of SSIs and beyond um, tension ischemia technique. Now, all those things are important. You want to keep the OR environment sterile. You want to change your gloves if you've had a messy operation. Yet yeah, all good. I'm not complaining about that. And technique, I teach good technique. Technique's very important. Do the best job you possibly can. Um, but until we sort of tease out what is the natural history of good healing, which we're about, we're launching a grant on now, we, we need to know serially when we endoscope patients why one patient's anastomosis looks beautiful over the course of the two weeks of healing just like their external wound, right? Some patients you look and you're like, ah, you can hardly see your wound. Other patients, 
you know, you got that inflammatory ridge. It looks a little red. You know, they're complaining of pain. And they do fine, but they just don't heal the same. What is the difference there? Is it all bacteria? Is it the bacterial host interaction? And how can we, how can we interdict in that process effectively without, and this was part of the NIGO lecture, right? Without just killing everything that threatens us because it's not an evolutionarily stable strategy. So I think the answer is, and, and both of you know this, is we have to have a period of prehabilitation, dietary prehabilitation, where we really start saying to patients, look, you know, uh, this waking up every day and eating, you know, three eggs, five strips of bacon and white toast and butter, and then a burger and fries for lunch. And, you know, and, and, you know, mashed potatoes, meatloaf and gravy for dinner. It's got to stop at least for a week before you I operate on you. <laughs> That's number one. And then we have to know what we change when we shift that diet to this prehab diet, which is, I don't know, I'm making this up because I don't know the answers. But the answers are knowable. I just don't know the answers. When I give you a you know kale smoothie and have you lose ten pounds and get you in a little bit better shape, quit smoking all the other. I got I got to know what I changed first of all, not just change it. And then I got to know as you progress along the healing process whether I've used too many antibiotics, I've used the right antibiotics, and whether I needed a bowel prep in that situation, oral and purgative cleansing, or didn't. And I need to see with my own eyes and track with, you know, uh, some molecular data. And then when you say five or 10 years from now, I can have a patient come in and just like you draw an albumin level or just like you draw a transfer level or have them see anesthesia and they do an ASA class or whatever. I'm going to just say, let me have a little swab of your nose and your poop and let me probe for some antimicrobial resistance genes or bad actors in there. See how many good bacteria have versus bad. And I'll get back to you in three or four days, you know, run a custom PCR and say, you know, you have colon cancer. You're not obstructed. I need about a week or 10 days to change your microbiome to a more favorable position. It's not going to take me long, you know, and I'm going to tailor your antibiotics in a different way. That would be to me the holy grail, which is to say, I'm going to manipulate your microbiome to your benefit, but I got to know what I'm doing. Right now, it's like, hey, how about a probiotic? Yeah, I heard these kale smoothies are good for you. You know, it can't be just that. You know, so that to me is the future, and it will reduce our use of antibiotics, which we need to do. Otherwise, this is a dress rehearsal for what you know what's to come. And you know, just like climate change. And just like, you know, uh, the antibiotic, uh, post-antibiotic era, antibiotic resistance crisis we're in, we got we to gotta be ahead of this. You know, we have to look at it as a headwind and we have to get ahead of it. That's, uh, I think, a, a inspiring vision for the future. Um, and and it, to me, it like ties together so many different aspects of what different groups are trying to do to try to improve outcomes. Um, and I think f- represents a shift in the way that we think about surgery in a much more complex way than we have up until this point. I mean, I think it's very telling that, you know, this, a lot of this, you know, initial work was done in the fifties and really gone full cycle in terms of 
of uh, bowel prep and and all these kinds of things, and we're only now kind of coming back to it. So, uh, you know, I'm so excited to see the work that that you're going to continue to put out, and and hopefully others take up uh, that mantle as well and keep going. And uh, and you know, somewhat facetiously, people on Twitter after your lecture were talking about uh, feeding all their patients preoperatively uh, broccoli. So <laughs> so maybe that's what we all need to do now too. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Dr. Alverde, to have you on the show. And we can't thank you enough for, for taking out the time from your incredibly busy schedule. If you could go back in time and, and give yourself advice as maybe a senior resident or a chief resident just about to, to graduate, what advice would you give yourself um, knowing what you know now? That's a really great question. You're absolutely right. Um, I think, you know, um, for me, um, it was always about, um, you know, for, for me, it was always about thinking of what I can't do versus what I'm capable of doing. Right. So like, you know, as you know, as both of you know, you know, going into an academic department of surgery is intimidating. There are a lot of really smart people there. And when I use that word solipsism, you know, there are a lot, there were a lot, at least when I was training, you know, there were a lot of authoritative figures, you know, a lot of autocratic authoritative figures in surgery who were giants in surgery. Uh, you know, who, you know, if if they said, you know, I don't know, radiation for rectal cancer is a bunch of crap. Don't do it. You went radiation for, you didn't read anything. You just went to Dr. So-and-so said radiation is bad. We're not doing it. It's because they had that kind of, they, they, they sat on an authoritative podium. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you this quick anecdote because I, a, a student of mine who was an MD PhD student here, he met Charles Huggins who won the Nobel prize for uh, prostate cancer, uh, uh, developing both the PSA test as well as understanding that prostate cancer is hormonally driven. He was a urologist here at the University of Chicago. Um, and, you know, he won it in the 60s or something. Brilliant guy. And he said to him, he goes up and he goes, Dr. Huggins, he goes, I just want to know one thing. How do you win a Nobel Prize? And Dr. Huggins looked at him and goes, you see all these smart people around here, you know, the people that you respect, the people that you think are gods and goddesses that know more than you'll ever know. He goes, you got to look at them right in the face and you have to say what you're saying about whatever it is, I don't know, DNA, telling race, whatever, what you're, what you're studying and what you're saying is true is wrong. And I'm going to spend my whole life proving it. Now, what kind of confidence does that take? I didn't have that. And I would say, if you said what we think, don't be intimidated by the worldview of others. And don't think, oh, I don't have a PhD. I don't have enough knowledge. I'm not really a trained science. I can't ask that question. Don't think that of yourself because it limits you. And I remember the Ashton Kusher movie where he was Steve Jobs and the head of IBM looks at him and goes, after Apple failed. And he looks at him and goes, when the head of IBM looks at Steve Jobs and goes, when are you going to get in your thick head that nobody ever is going to want a home computer? I mean, how did he how did he prevail after the head of IBM tells him he's not only an idiot, 
But the thing he's trying to develop, nobody's going to ever want. But we get, go read, go read some Nobel Prize winners, you know, read their, like their, their speeches at the, every one of them, you know, their NIH grant, their papers got rejected, their NIH grant got, their, their postdoctoral advisors told, you're an idiot, that'll never work. That is true of the woman that discovered telomerase, uh, uh, Elizabeth Blackburn. That is true of the Cass CRISPR thing. That is true of so many stories. They'll tell you, yeah, you know, my chief told me, don't do that. It's a big mistake. So that's the answer. That's how I'd answer that. You know, listen to your inner self, not what anybody else tells you. And be confident. It's hard. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thanks again.